My guest today is Professor Jim Dwyer from the College of William and Mary School of Law. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. You wrote, along with Sean Peters, this excellent book that came out in 2019 called Homeschooling, the History and Philosophy of a Controversial Practice. Uh, This is one of my favorite books of the whole year and one of my all-time favorite books written about homeschooling. And can you give us a little bit of backstory about how the book came about and your partnership with Sean? Uh, Well, I'm so happy to hear that you had that reaction. Uh, The book came about because the University of Chicago Press is doing a series of books uh, combining historians and philosophers uh, to talk about various aspects of education. Uh, So there have been a half dozen other books on different educational topics. And the series editor approached me and Sean to ask if uh, we would partner up to write about homeschooling. Uh, He asked me because some years ago I'd written two books on private schooling, one on regulation and one on financing uh, school vouchers. And so I had that background and he liked my work. So he asked me to do the philosophy part of this book. Do you have a background with homeschoolers or any sort of relationship to that field? It sounds like you were you're mostly working with private schools previously. Yes, although in researching uh, private schooling, I also looked at uh, the homeschooling literature. Uh, I know some people who homeschool, uh, but not a lot. I consider doing it myself uh, with my two youngest um, and envy those who are able to do it. Uh, ultimately, I decided I wasn't able to with a full-time uh, job. As I said, admire those who have done it. Um, don't interact with local homeschoolers or otherwise have any kind of inside knowledge. Okay, that's helpful. And the book is half history, half philosophy. The first half, more or less, was uh, authored by Sean Peters. And the second half is your half. And there's a nice uh, kind of structure to that because you, f- you start with the is, like how homeschooling came to be and, and what the reality of it is right now. And then you move into the ought, the discussion of, of why <laughs> uh, we should allow homeschooling to be certain ways uh, and the questions of regulation and about what kinds of homeschooling are permissible. Um, so I loved both halves. Uh, the history blew me away. And just realizing how indebted the sort of liberal side of the homeschooling movement is, and, and that's more the waters I swim in, the, the unschooling waters, how indebted mm-hmm. uh, these people are to the other much larger side of, of the homeschooling movement, the more conservative and religious side, for creating these laws mostly in the the 70s and 80s, and mostly thanks to the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, that are so incredibly permissive. Uh, And there are some states like New York that are a little bit less permissive, but still compared to like Europe or so many other parts of the world, they they look at the the freedoms that we have in the United States to do whatever the heck we want. And just say, how did we get there? And really, tell me if I'm wrong, we have to credit it to like the the radical uh, religious right for making that possible because they didn't want to, uh, you know, I I believe it was the Supreme Court rulings in the 60s that said evolution, yes, will be taught in public schools and no Bible 
study is not going to be permissible anymore. Were those some of the, the big influences that the, the right had for pushing this extreme form of homeschooling law? Absolutely. There was a kind of alienation uh, from the public schools in part because of these Supreme Court rulings that uh, secularized the schools and many parents uh, wanted their children exposed uh, to religion uh, to have uh, a Christian environment wherever they were, uh, at home or in school, and uh, so felt uncomfortable, felt public schools were hostile to them. Uh, and I do think it's true that it's largely been religious conservatives that push for deregulation. Uh, there's kind of fervor to their um, averseness to any state oversight that gives them the motivation to, to lobby, to litigate, uh, to create a large membership organization like uh, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. And I imagine that the more religious and conservative readers of this book are not very happy with what's printed here. There's a lot. I feel like the book is largely aimed at uh, conservative and religious homeschoolers. And a lot of the, the horror stories, the, the, the very strong counterpoints and anecdotes that, that come from this book are focused on, on those families uh, who are homeschooling for, for again, different reasons in general than in the families that are, are probably listening to this podcast. Uh, well, I think that, uh, you know, I understood your, your point initially to be that I was writing to uh, conservatives, and I think that's very apt. I think that's uh, very perceptive. Um, I tried to, you know, acknowledge their motivations and respect, uh, you know, the, the valuable uh, motivations that they have, the genuine concern for their children. I acknowledged that homeschooling uh, can be great. I defended it in many ways in the book. <clears throat> so that I, I hoped they would be receptive to, and it would allow them to read the whole book instead of, uh, you know, refusing even to open it, um, so that I could engage them with some theoretical questions that I think uh, anyone ought to be willing to think about. Um, and I tried to answer them objectively and non-tendentiously, uh, perhaps not even fully answering all of them, even <clears throat> some questions open to further discussion. And I think you did a really good job of that, and Sean too, and the book is written in the spirit of intellectual exploration. Um, there are some policy prescriptions and regulate, regulation prescriptions at the very end that I take issue with, and hopefully we'll get to that. Uh, but by and large, it's, I, I recommend that everyone reads it. It's not an easy read. It, it is a textbook. It is, it's dense. It's the kind of book most people are not going to pick up unless they are assigned it for a class that they're getting mm -hmm. academic credit <laughs> for. But I picked it up, and I loved it. So there's one person's endorsement. Um, all right, let's just jump into this um, you begin in your section of the book uh, ruling out extreme views about homeschooling. And that means either blanket condemnation, people who say nobody should be allowed to homeschool, and also blanket endorsement, people who say homeschooling is great, everyone should be allowed to do it without any restrictions. So why do you rule out these extremes from the very beginning? My perception of what debate there is over homeschooling is that it's highly polarized and that neither polar view 
um, is accurate or very constructive. Um, and so I wanted to address that immediately to, uh, you know, first acknowledge uh, for the sake of those who are homeschooling that people who would just uh, lay a, a blanket criticism and say this can't possibly be good or wrong, right? It's uh, not too difficult to spell out a kind of uh, homeschooling that even uh, these critics of homeschooling should say, yeah, that's pretty darn good, probably better than any public school can accomplish. Um, but then at the same time, uh, at the other poll, you have uh, defenders of homeschooling who and defenders of complete deregulation who make uh, exaggerated claims, I would say, about how good it is, uh, about its being uniformly good, uh, and arguing on that basis that there is no need for any state oversight whatsoever. Uh, that view, I think, is also untenable um, and unconstructive. It's just not plausible, and you're not going to ever convince anyone who doesn't want to already believe that, uh, that it's true. I agree. And all you need are a few truthful stories of, of child abuse, of, of people taking advantage of these, these laws. Uh, all you need to do is read the book Educated by Tara Westover. And that is enough, I think, to convince any reasonable person that the, the argue, argument for complete lack of oversight uh, or, or and not even being able to talk about regulation is, is too extreme to be reasonably considered. And in other realms of childbearing, uh, people generally accept this. Even people who are homeschooling understand that, for example, with respect to medical care, uh, well, of course, uh, there have to be some rules about what parents may and may not do with respect to their children's health. Parents are not generally medical experts. Uh, children have certain health needs. And as to some things, uh, <clears throat> there is expertise in other places, state agencies, private professions, uh, and parents have to defer to some extent to what those professionals say. Uh, but for some reason, when it comes to education, some people think that's not true, that uh, it's desirable to have uh, no state oversight or no input from uh, professionals whatsoever. And you dedicate a whole chapter to the state's appropriate role in child rearing and schooling. And I love how you take down this statement that I've heard many times, which is that the state has no role in family affairs or in telling a family how to raise their kids. And you go straight to the root. And some of the examples you offer are, well, uh, do you believe that when uh, two birth parents have a child that uh, assigning legal parenthood to that child is important because if you didn't do that, then somebody could just steal your child. They could just steal your baby and say, no, this is my baby. And you'd have no recourse from the state to get your kid back. I mean, it's kind of ludicrous to, to think about that as a, a thought experiment today, but uh, it makes sense. And uh, in the same way, we you know, do not approve of a parent's right to murder their own child. We just think, well, obviously, if someone does that, the state needs to intervene to, to punish them and, and to prevent cases like that. And then, you know, we go on down to just general levels of, of physical and emotional abuse. And again, virtually everyone agrees, yes, there is a state's role in intervening uh, in these family affairs. 
A lot of what the state does, we're just not aware of. It's uh, invisible to us um, because it seems natural. It's what the state has done for a long time. Uh, and, but in fact, when people want to do uh, something uh, contrary to the mainstream with their children, what they're asking the state to do is not really to be left alone. It's for the state to give them something, to give them power over these dependent persons. Uh, and we would see this if we were not talking about children, if we were talking about other uh, persons in family relationships, if husbands again asked for that kind of power over their wives and the state legally gave it to them, you now have the legal power to decide if your wife goes to school, uh, we would see the state's hand. We would say, oh, that's pretty uh, profound state action to give one person such legal power over another. Uh, if it were you know, an incompetent adult put under a guardianship, we see the state's role in conferring that status of guardian and uh, the state's role in conferring particular powers, deciding where this person's going to live, uh, what uh, rehabilitative programs they might have, and so forth. Uh, so I hope that by getting people to realize what homeschoolers uh, favoring deregulation are asking for, uh, is not to be left alone. It's they're ask, they're asking the state to give them something extraordinary. Mm. You make a very helpful distinction throughout your chapters about autonomous versus semi-autonomous people, and children are in the category of semi-autonomous. And so, uh, I, I did a previous interview with a friend who works for a, a youth rights organization, and and that is uh, a big discussion, and it's a very messy discussion figuring out how much autonomy to ascribe to a child, to an average child, and then there's exceptions to the average. And and these these arbitrary age cutoffs that we have to say that someone has certain rights and responsibilities and they're autonomous or not autonomous, it's, it's all very messy. But I appreciate that you use the words autonomous and semi-autonomous. It, it really worked in the book. Oh, thanks. And, uh, you know, as you get into adolescence, uh, for me, it becomes theoretically more difficult, more challenging, because you have to uh, acknowledge the uh, growing capacities of youths. And in some sense, it's simpler. With a five-year-old, we uh, accept, you know, that paternalism is necessary to a greater degree. Uh, and so it's cleaner in a way to theorize about the beginning of school when a uh, child reaches school age, uh, who is going to be making what kinds of decisions for them under what constraints. So as you talk about the rights of children, uh, you begin by discussing three common but pretty flawed ideas or, or assumptions that people bring to this discussion. Uh, the first one is that child rearing is merely a part of parental self-determination. So essentially uh, adult autonomy says, I can do whatever I want with my kids. Uh, and then the second uh, false assumption is that children can be seen as a collective resource. And so that would be like, yeah, forcing kids into certain job training programs for the benefit of the United States of America. Um, and then the third one is that, well, these are both flawed positions, but if we just choose a position somewhere in between, then we've hit the truth. Uh, so can you speak a little bit more to this? Yeah, I don't know if conceptually it's in between or just different, but uh, the second point was uh, addressed to, um, you know, the anti-regulation people, perhaps to the more 
conservative anti-statist ones uh, acknowledging, yes, children don't belong to the state. They are members of families. They are their own persons, right? And you are absolutely right to say that the state shouldn't be controlling children's lives for its own purposes, uh, that it should have a child-centered view itself. Uh, but then the first point is about uh, this notion of parental entitlement or right, which uh, I have long argued is highly problematic. Our conception of rights in in this culture, in the Anglo-American legal system, uh, is about self-determination. And parenting is not that. I'm a parent and I recognize that every day, that uh, my um, my uh, care of them and uh, control, my authority to make decisions for them is not a matter of my right. It's certainly not a matter of my uh, controlling my own life. <clears throat> it's a fiduciary role. It's a privilege to be in this, this role and care for them. Uh, and I should have authority. Parents should have uh, a substantial amount of control over their children's lives. Um, but that's only because, in my view, uh, it's good for the children. And you have to accept that when you take on the parenting role, that it is a fiduciary role, that you uh, are serving children's welfare. It's a calling, and uh, it's not a matter of your entitlement or rights, and they're not your property. Hmm. And that leads right into the the six assumptions that you write about regarding uh, children's rights. The first is children are distinct persons, uh, not just mere chattel. Uh, the second one is that uh, just the idea of, of having a right to control others' lives is an anathema idea, uh, just in and of itself. And so, so far, I think everyone is with you here. Um, let's see. The third is children have the greatest interests at stake in their schooling. This is one I really appreciated seeing on paper. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Some people refer to parental interests as fundamental. Uh, the Supreme Court has, right, uh, has, has at times, though not consistently, referred to uh, parental authority as a matter of fundamental right and fundamental interests. Um, but I think uh, we need to be more reflective about that terminology and about the actual relative importance of interests uh, connected with child rearing to different people. So. I certainly take an interest in my children's well-being, and I uh, have an interest that's fulfilled by being a parent. It's you know like a career. It's something I wanted to do, and now I'm doing it to the best of my ability. Uh, but that's not a fundamental interest. That's what philosophers might call an ulterior interest, a higher-order uh, aim that you have. Uh, but fundamental really refers to the, the base, the foundation of your life. What are the most basic things that you need in order to do anything else in life? Uh, and education is one of them. Uh, for children, schooling is a fundamental interest uh, in a way that it's not for their parents. Uh, and so in that sense, it seems straightforward. And I think most homeschoolers would concede that, yes, their children have greater interests at stake. Yeah, you might just get a little pushback on using the word schooling instead of education because that's that's a, okay, a big enough. meme in this community that you know you can get an education uh, without going to school. Um, okay, the next one is is where yeah I, maybe you'll get some disagreement. Uh, the state must ultimately determine 
children's interests. But you come at this with a lot of uh, law, a lot of history. Um, again, you're taking aim at this idea that only parents know what's best for their children. I mean, explain why that statement is wrong. Well, uh, first of all, it's you know conceptually uh, problematic for any individual to say that about other people that they know what's best because in order to reach that judgment, you would have to know what's best yourself and compare it to what these people believe. And so it's just uh, logically uh, awkward to, to make that kind of claim. Uh, but secondly, you know, empirically it's obvious that a lot of that no parent uh, is omniscient. We all make mistakes. We all have limited knowledge and uh, again, if you look outside the realm of education, we generally concede this. I don't know anything about medical care. Um, and education is not necessarily different. When I thought about homeschooling myself, I thought, do I know how to teach a child how to read? Um, no, I don't. Maybe I could learn that by uh, you know, doing some online research. Uh, do I know how to teach math really well? I mean, there are people who study this for, for years uh, who devote their careers to it, who become knowledgeable in their techniques, as with medicine, uh, and how, how to create certain benefits for children. Uh, and so the notion that just by virtue of being a parent, you are omniscient. Uh, you know, when my child was born, there was no lightning bolt that hit me that, that suddenly confirmed, conferred immense <laughs> knowledge on me, uh, just as ignorant as I was then. Um, so, uh, you know, empirically also it just implausible to to think that parents know, know best. Do parents love their children the most? Uh, for the vast majority of them, yes, uh, of course. Um, but we all know that uh, love doesn't necessarily translate into wisdom or knowledge. Um, and uh, you concede in the book that while uh, parents don't necessarily know what's best for their children, that the state also doesn't necessarily know best, and that the state is not omniscient, and it's flawed. And as anyone who has had a bad math teacher in school can attest, you know, just because someone got trained to teach math 30 years ago does not mean that that I am going to get much out of this math class, or my time as an auto autonomous or semi-autonomous student is not being wasted uh, by this compulsory schooling. Uh, uh, and you, you return to this idea of, of semi-autonomous uh, people and the idea that, that in, in many other realms, the state does ultimately determine the interests of semi-autonomous or non-autonomous people. And, and children are a lot like these other cases. Can you just enumerate some of these other cases, in, w in which case most people say, yeah, of course, the government should be responsible and, and determine these people's interests? Well, certainly true with uh, adults who are under a guardianship. Um, and I mean, if you ask yourself, how could it possibly be that the state would not, you know, be the ultimate decision maker uh, as to the interests of dependent persons? I'm not sure, you know, who else possibly could be. We, we can't just put a dependent person in the care of another and say, do whatever you want. Uh, and so if we're going to have any bounds on their freedom and their power, uh, they're going to have to be legal bounds set by the state because it's the state that, that makes laws. It's not clear who else could impose 
those bounds. You know, historically, if you know, if it's meaningful to speak of a time before there was a state. It was it was a community. Um, and in fact, one of the points in the historical part of the book that I think is important is that in earlier uh, America, it was actually much more common for local officials to be quite intrusive uh, into family life. This notion of uh, the home as a castle and uh, parents as being entitled to operate in an insular way uh, is fairly modern in America. It's uh, 19th century development. Yeah, that, that was a fascinating thing to read. And just the, the history of, of really kind of what we would now call obscene levels of state intervention into family lives uh, was was immense back then in, in these colonial days that I think are very easy to romanticize now. So uh, I, the, the book is well-structured, having history first and philosophy second. And no one's recommending going back to a time when no, of course. Know, children would be re- removed just because you're poor. Um, but it's, I think it's creates some perspective to, to realize that this wasn't written in stone, uh, you know, from time immemorial that, uh, parents should have such extensive power over children's lives. So just to wrap up the list of assumptions that you make about children's rights, uh, the fifth one is that the state cannot act on the basis of religious belief. Great. And then finally, in establishing school laws, the state acts as a fiduciary for children, which you've already mentioned. Uh, but could you talk a little bit more about the distinction between police power and uh, parens patriae, if I said that correctly, uh, and, and define that for us, please? Yeah, so I mentioned that we parents uh, occupy a fiduciary role. And I think that with respect to certain decisions, the state should also be viewed as uh, such. It shouldn't be viewed as serving its own interests, uh, as I said. So uh, this distinction between two types of hats that the state wears, I'm teaching to my law students every year. Uh, We recognize it very quickly, uh, but most people haven't had it explicitly pointed out to them. So the most common uh, role that the state takes is that of the police power role. And it's not just about crime. It's just a, a term that we use to mean whenever the state is acting as an agent for everyone, right? Balancing interests, making sure that uh, things run smoothly in society for everyone's uh, interests, um, re- resolving conflicting interests and harms and that sort of thing. Uh, but then with respect to non-fully autonomous persons, uh, like young children, uh, we generally accept that the state uh, assumes some decision-making power with respect to their lives. And my argument is that when it does, uh, when it involves itself in children's lives with respect to any aspect of it, that we adults would be able to decide for ourselves, that it would be a matter of self-determination for us, that in those contexts, the state should be viewed as operating in a parent's patriot role, which is just as an agent for that child, uh, a fiduciary for the child. Uh, and these are the kinds of decisions like, will I go to school? If so, where will I go to school? Or how, how else will I be educated? Will I receive medical care or not? Right? We adults are, for the most part, uh, entitled to decide those things based solely on our own interests, 
not balancing our interest against anyone else's. No one else has a say in the matter. Uh, so as to those kinds of decisions, I think we should view the state as simply stepping into uh, the shoes or sharing the shoes with the child and acting as an agent for them. And so shouldn't be balancing their interests against those of parents or the rest of society or religious community or cultural group or anything else. It should just be trying to figure out as best it can uh, what will best serve the long-term well-being of the child. So at this point in the book, you really come off as coming down on the side of the child, not society, not the parents, but the, the wishes, needs, and interests of the child, who is an autonomous being, even if they're not fully autonomous in the sense of being competent to run their own lives yet. Uh, but that who that is the most important party in this equation. Is that accurate? Yes. And in, you know, in terms of the child as autonomous agent themselves, um, as you suggested, uh, the extent to which we rely on and defer to their own preferences should evolve over time with their capacities. We should always listen to them. Uh, this is you know, well accepted in, in the realm of legal representation for children, say custody disputes or child maltreatment cases. You should listen to a child of any age uh, to find out what they want and uh, exercise some paternalism in the younger years, and that declines over time. Um, but ultimately, with respect to education, uh, the child has to be first. Their interest should be paramount. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, in the next chapter, chapter six, you go on to talk about schooling and what you call basic human goods. And I uh, interpret this as the things that we imagine kids get out of a really positive school situation or other educational environment. So I'm just going to uh, briefly list these, and then we'll go back, and, and I want to talk about each one a bit more. Uh, so first, cognitive and intellectual development, which can be essentially summarized as the ability to think for yourself. Uh, the second is factual knowledge, and with that you include uh, awareness of a diversity of belief systems or, or conceptions of the good. I love that phrase. Uh, next, social interaction, uh, followed by identity formation, uh, which is a concept of self, of self-respect, self-esteem. Um, kids need family relationships. That's a basic human good. And they need physical, psychological, and emotional security. No one's going to argue with that. And finally, you have a, a, what feels to me like a bit more nebulous final basic human good, which is equality. Uh, which seems to be, let's just actually, let's talk about the, the last one first. By equality, you seem to be talking about equal treatment in the sense of, you know, how we think about equal treatment under the law. And especially, uh, you seem to be especially concerned about uh, the, the disparate treatment between men and women, boys and girls, uh, that can take place in some more conservative homeschooling communities. So there are a couple of ways in which equality plays a role in the theory. Uh, one is to say that if you guarantee certain things for some children and not for others, that you're discriminating and you need uh, justification for that, uh, whose strength will depend on, on how important uh, the good is that uh, you're denying some children. 
Uh, and so that go- speaks to the demand for exemptions based on religious beliefs. We need to recognize that's a form of discrimination against children of the religious dissenters. Mm. Uh, and they're asking the state to give them that, to empower them to do something different. And the state needs its own strong justification to do that. Uh, and then secondly, the more substantively within uh, the homeschooling environments regarding the content of instruction and the way children are treated, there is this equality concern uh, that is perhaps more controversial. So I think everyone can accept that uh, when the state discriminates legally among groups of children, uh, it needs to justify doing so, that there's a prima facie equality right against that. Um, but many people believe that there are important differences between females and males that should be taught to them that should influence how they treat them. Uh, and so here I'm invoking a liberal value that many people reject, but as it happens, our government has embraced. Uh, we have many laws prohibiting gender discrimination by government actors uh, and promoting gender equality among private actors. So we collectively, though not universally, uh, but a majority of Americans have embraced this value of gender equality. Uh, and the, these two forms of equality are connected, right? Because uh, some people are essentially asking that the state not guarantee a gender equalizing or gender equality education for their children. They want uh, their children to be treated differently from those uh, who are in public school um, or perhaps even in private schools. Gosh, this is so uh, complicated and interesting because one way to interpret what you just said is is we shouldn't allow people to practice religions that are are highly discriminatory, you know, between genders uh, or, you know, practice it in the privacy of their own home and to, you know, instill their children with those beliefs. But I know that's not what you're saying. Uh, No, what we're talking about is um, children's development. We're not talking about regulation of adults' control of their own lives. Uh, And I think that from the state's perspective, operating in this fiduciary role with respect to all children, uh, it should conclude that no children should be prevented from viewing themselves as equal in a full sense, as having the same opportunities as any other child uh, based on their gender. Hmm. So to be Once, raised in, in an environment where that message is so overwhelmingly powerful would be... Where to, it's the only message. It's, it's right? the only message. Would be to deny a, a basic human good to that child. Right. Got it. Now, of course, uh, anyone who grows up exposed to uh, the value of gender equality and taught in some environments, you know, even if it's not in home, but in in educational environments that they are equal and they should have the same opportunity to go to college, to pursue a career in science or anything else outside the home. Uh, They, even after receiving that, they might still decide as adults that they want to live in Uh, a community that doesn't adhere to that value. And of course, we're not going to uh, stop that. The idea is just to enable every child 
to have an open future, uh, as Joel Feinberg uh, termed it, um, the the full range of of opportunities rather than some having less because they are happen to be female rather than male. Great. Let's go back to the beginning of the list, cognitive and intellectual development, which uh, I read as essentially the ability to think for yourself and not be completely brainwashed. Uh, You have a wonderful thought experiment in this chapter where you say, imagine that you are born again uh, to parents who have the, the complete opposite beliefs of the beliefs you hold right now. Uh, do you feel that it's okay to be brought up in, a, in you know, I, I interpreted this as a highly sheltered uh, homeschool environment where you're essentially indoctrinated in these beliefs that are contrary to the ones you have right now. Um, uh, can you expound on that a bit, please? Well, I think uh, for people who are willing to do thought experiments, uh, this can be powerful. Uh, and it's is inspired by John Rawls, uh, Harvard philosopher, uh, now deceased, uh, his idea of a veil of ignorance and choosing the principles for a just society. Uh, imagine that you're deciding behind a veil that shields you from knowledge about particular aspects of your uh, yourself, your talents and abilities, your social class, your uh, race, and so forth. Um, so the idea here is just imagine that you don't know who your parents are going to be, uh, say in the next life, uh, and uh, they could believe uh, something that you now find repulsive. Wouldn't you want the legal environment to be such that you are guaranteed uh, the opportunity to develop the capacity to think for yourself and to reject those when you become older? I, uh, I'm not sure how anyone uh, would disagree with that. It's just hard to shake the idea that, you know, I believe this now and I'm right. And I want my children to be right. And if they're exposed to other ways of thinking, then they might be uh, distracted away from what's right. Uh, I'm quite sympathetic to that view. Uh, and so another angle to take is to say to such people, Uh, But we need laws that pertain to all children, right, that are of general general applicability. And you know that there are some parents out there that you think have terrible values and you would want their children, if you cared about them, uh, to be able to think for themselves so that they could reject those when they grow up, right? Uh, So maybe that's another way to to get people to to buy in or at least uh, consider that this might be the right way to think about it. Mm Uh, your second good is factual knowledge, a basic set of, of facts about how the world operates. That's not very controversial. Uh, you spend a little bit more time on uh, the importance of children recognizing that there is a diversity of belief systems, especially religious belief systems or, or philosophical belief systems in the world. Uh, why do you consider that a, a basic human good? Well, I think that... Um you know, our value structure has a great impact on our happiness. Uh, our sense of values and of right and wrong uh, is constantly interacting with our sense of, of who we are, uh, of our inclinations, of our talents and abilities. 
Uh, and if there is a great disconnect between these two things or, you know, conflict, it could be a cause of great pain. Uh, and so I think it's important that uh, people have a, a menu of sorts, uh, ideologically, um, in terms of uh, values or conceptions of the good, so that they can, you know, occupy a, a space mentally, ideologically, that suits them, that is comfortable for them, where they can be happy. So just to speak concretely about this, how would you imagine, uh, let's say within a regular school environment, how would this be fulfilled? Would a, a world religions class do it? So this might be a good place for me to acknowledge that there are many ways in which public schooling, even you know, pri- some private schooling, just institutional schooling, uh, inevitably falls short where you're dealing with a large population, uh, with some diversity of views among parents as to what's good. You end up uh, sort of limiting your, yourself. So it's very difficult in public school to teach about religion uh, because it uh, is a sensitive subject and you are likely to get opposition from some parents no matter what approach you take. Um, But yes, ideally in uh, all public schools, there would be a world religions curriculum, a kind of sociology of religion uh, course instruction that was respectful of a variety of uh, religious and non-religious conceptions of the good, and at least gave some children, uh, you know, a sense that there is diversity, that it is open to them to choose at some point uh, which way of looking at the world makes the most sense to them, uh, and that also invites them to think critically and reflectively and uh, analytically, uh, even uh, affectively about uh, what what conception of the good is best for them or, or, or seems to them true or, or um, most persuasive. Yeah, and I think this, along with the, the first basic good, cognitive and intellectual development, it really just speaks to open-mindedness. And I want to take a, a quick tangent here. We're, in the book, you talk about homeschooling from a very kind of traditional conception of homeschooling, and there's not much discussion. Uh, on this podcast, we talk a lot about self-directed learning and self-directed education. And uh, within that realm that I'm more familiar with, I, I just want to throw something out there, an observation, which is I think that kids, especially adolescents, are very interested in, in educating themselves about different belief systems and they will do it automatically without any sort of, of, you know, coercion or curriculum. And their number one tool is YouTube, like just (laughs) going on there and finding weird stuff. Like, like Mm -hmm. you've heard of the flying spaghetti monster before, right? Now, now there's a conception of the good, uh, (laughs) pastafarians, you know, it's humorous, but it does teach you something about, uh, you know, belief systems and, and kids like sharing this with each other. And there's such great content out there, like the, the crash course series. Uh, and so this is what I've observed in hanging out with, with uh, self-directed kids, especially adolescents that this, 
this is important and they tend to take care of it themselves and in their mm-hmm. own way that adults often don't really understand or, or, you know, they just see a kid zoning out in front of a screen and think, well, the kid's obviously wasting their time. That kid might be uh, exposing herself to different conceptions of the good right mm-hmm. there. So thanks for letting me talk. <laughs> yeah. Someone who grew up in a fairly authoritarian uh, religious environments. It surprises me when I encounter uh, adolescents, even younger children, who uh, have thought about big questions and um, been able to step outside conventional ways of thinking uh, to offer uh, novel observations about things. Yeah, yeah kids can be extremely thoughtful. They can. And and the description you just made is the one that I have happily encountered over and over again in my work with unschooled uh, teenagers. And that's really has what kept me in this game. And it's made me want to continue running programs in which I'm, I'm directly working with them. So I would guess that uh, they're mostly in liberal households. Yeah, that's my understanding to trust them and yes, uh, believe that, um, you know, the, there's, the world is open, that the children should have an open future and an open mind. Completely. Uh, so undoubtedly there are households where the children are not allowed to explore. They're not uh, given any kind of device where they could access YouTube or anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, in the book I'm, I'm finishing right now, I, I surmise whether the ability for homeschooling parents to truly shelter and indoctrinate is being whittled away due to the ubiquitousness of, of Wi-Fi and of mobile data. And mm. all you need is one kid with, who's part of a peer group that has, where there's one other kid that has mobile data, and they can yeah. watch those YouTube videos. I, that, just, that level of access, I think, might be doing wonders for for these first two basic human goods for, for cognitive uh, development and for uh, diversity of belief systems. Uh, th- that's how I'd like to think about it. At least I'm not sure if my optimism is grounded or not. <laughs> I was going to uh, say that I've, I've long thought that what's really essential is the development of critical thinking skills um, and sort of an a- attitude of, of seeking and being somewhat open-minded and actually being exposed to uh, various ideologies or uh, ways of looking at the world early on is not so essential as long as your brain is developing in such a way that when you do encounter diversity, you can process that and think it through mm-hmm. and come to terms with your own beliefs, uh, then you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you there. And that sentiment comes out in the book also. Okay, the third basic human good is social interaction. You know, homeschoolers are often harassed by people saying, but how do you get socialized? And, and often the, the response is, well, you know, first of all, let's have a fair trial here. What kind of socialization is going on in schools? Mm-hmm. Oftentimes there's a lot of negative socialization. Uh, there, there's bullying, there's getting, you know, kids getting shoe-holed into, shoehorned into these hierarchies. And it's, uh, it can be rough. Uh, yeah, having had uh, two girls, two daughters go through middle school and high school, I can certainly mm. uh, attest to that. The socialization concern, um, you, you know, I, I see some uh, legitimate 
aspect of that, but it's always seemed overstated to me uh, for a variety of reasons. One is, you know, as you know, uh, many homeschoolers involve themselves in networks. Uh, they are interacting with other homeschooling families. They are not, you know, sitting home uh, alone with uh, the windows boarded up. Um, they do things in the community. They go to uh, museums. They're interacting with people outside the house quite a bit. Um, and some would say, I, correctly, I think in a more natural environment, right, where you're not all the same age. Um, and um, secondly, because I think, uh, you know, I agree with you that uh, there can be bad socializing that happens in other environments. Um, and thirdly, uh, that I, th I think people might exaggerate the need that we have for interacting with large groups of people. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we need to be in, uh, on a regular basis in a building with hundreds of other uh, children in order to be socialized. Uh, that said, there are concerns about some families that are overly reclusive, um, uh, which presents not just concern about socialization, but also about the possibility of undetected maltreatment. Mm. I agree. And one of the nuances you bring up in this section is that it's especially important for ad for budding adolescents, tweens and teens, to be able to voluntarily choose their, their friends from peer groups. And, and perhaps being sheltered is, is a bit less of a concern when a kid is younger, but, but if mm. a developing adolescent is not allowed to kind of exercise those social skills of choosing their own friends... Uh, they're really missing out on something. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. The next good is identity formation. Can you just briefly explain this? Well, uh, you know, developmentally, we begin to, to have a sense of ourselves uh, in infancy. And uh, this is related also to sort of intellectual and moral autonomy an important human good is self-authorship, right? Uh, figuring out who you are and who you want to be uh, and both creating and understanding and being able to present yourself uh, to the world as a particular, uh, a person of a particular sort with a uh, particular personality and talents and abilities. Um, so uh, education can play uh, a role in self-understanding and an exposure to um, you know, not only different ways of thinking, but different career possibilities, uh, different family choices, uh, and so forth. And some forms of schooling or, or education could be unduly restrictive of this, of condemning some forms of identity that maybe uh, are, are not inherently bad. So I immediately think of you know families that say that, that you know saying that you're homosexual is is just an unacceptable thing to do you know you'll you won't be part of the family anymore uh, is that where you're going with identity formation it sounds like you're you're going lots of different places like oh, I I want to to be an artist instead of uh, working at the family business yeah it's many things uh, we have so many different aspects of our our self. Um, many of which are important to us. And 
certainly your sense of yourself in relationships, particular intimate relationships, you know, projecting forward to when you're an adolescent or adult, uh, very important to young people. Um, and so it is a great concern that some children are, are being told that their inclination, who they are, who they feel themselves to be, uh, is inherently bad, is sinful. And, you know, I'm not suggesting in this book that uh, everything could be cured by oversight of homeschooling, uh, even if these children went to regular school, if, sure. if, if you use that term, outside the home. Uh, another important point I make in the book is that parents would still have the children in their custody 75 to 80 percent of the time. If you add up the hours that schooling occupies uh, regular schooling relative to all the hours that a child is awake, uh, parents are always going to have a dominant influence, are going to uh, have control over the children the vast majority of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're not going to you know, go into homes and tell uh, parents that they can't have any beliefs that they express. Of course, you know there are limits in the form of psychological abuse definitions, but we can't protect children from everything. Hmm. And, and lest uh, anyone believe at this point in the book that you are, you are somehow anti-family or anti-parents you know, being able to influence their kids, your next basic human good is family relationships. And you, you stress how especially that the early uh, connection between parent and child is absolutely essential for proper development, uh, while at the sa same time saying within a homeschooling context, Parents can also burn out. You can have too much time around your kids, mm. and then that can lead to, to negative consequences also. But, but essentially, this is a very pro-homeschooling uh, part of, of this chapter where you're saying homeschoolers do this well. They, they form very tight uh, family bonds, typically, and that's a good thing. That's a basic human good. Many homeschoolers express this value, uh, this aim of uh, having a close-knit family. Uh, so I listened to that, um, and I was also influenced by uh, the extensive study of child development that I've done in the maltreatment context and understanding attachments and the importance of attachment relationships. So this is one aspect of the book that I especially like, um, that I you know, was brought to a place where I could acknowledge uh, what many homeschoolers are saying, that this is really of fundamental importance to children, to have strong family relationships is a, a wonderful and important thing uh, that the state should respect uh, and protect. And that led me in the analytical part and thinking about policy, uh, if not to jump ahead, but, uh, to begin with the premise that children have a right to stay home. I really like that aspect of the book because I thought uh, the those people most likely to oppose my policy prescriptions would uh, embrace that starting premise, would like that aspect of the book at least. Yeah, I like that. And we will touch on that in just a moment. Uh, <laughs> uh, just to, to close out the basic human goods, uh, you say physical, psychological, and emotional security are, are absolute you know, important things for children, no matter their educational status. This makes me think of a recent NPR piece that I listened to about homeschooling. And it's a helpful reminder because 
most people only hear about homeschooling when some horrible abuse case uh, is splashed on the headlines. And that's where a lot of the people who were calling into this NPR show were concerned about that. They essentially thought that homeschooling is a cover operation for negligent or radical parents to somehow you know, manipulate uh, or or abuse their children. And this this does happen sometimes. You cite a number of these incidents or you cite organizations of, of grown homeschoolers who are now speaking out about what happened to them. Uh, so speak to this a bit more, please. Well, one concern with homeschooling is that you might not have any other eyes on the child. Uh, and to some people, the, the notion that anyone outside the family must have eyes on the child is kind of creepy and uh, sounds like Big Brother. Um, but I think children in general need to have people outside the family uh, observing them and making sure that they are okay. Um, and it would be unreasonable for anyone to say that they shouldn't. If you are abusing your child in a way that would be manifest to teachers in school, uh, who are one of the two main reporters of child maltreatment in our society, teachers and doctors, uh, if you are abusing your child, you're not going to want to send them to, to school, right? So this is a choice that uh, a lot of people who are physically abusing their children, sexually abusing, will make. This is not to suggest that it's a substantial percentage of all the people who are homeschooling, but just this is something associated with homeschooling. Homeschooling is something that uh, serious abusers use uh, in order to avoid detection, mm -hmm. uh, which is, I mean, that's not quite an apt way of saying it. They're not, uh, you know, using education in the home uh, to yeah, disguise yeah, anything. Yeah. They're just not sending their child to school. Yeah, that's uh, right. Keep it the child in the home. And you make and the they, important point that we really don't know how much of this is going on. There's no good measurement. There's no good metric uh, because homeschooling laws are so hands-off in most of the states. Hey, one thing that I find upsetting is that people will make empirical claims about homeschooling, whether it's about educational outcomes or about the number of homes in which there's maltreatment going on. Uh, without any basis. We, we just don't know. We are not uh, overseeing homeschooling to such a degree that we can substantiate such statements that it's X percentage or Y percentage uh, that are problematic. Uh, we don't know what educational outcomes are being achieved by homeschoolers in general, uh, certainly not by every homeschooler, and uh, every child matters. So um, this physical aspect of well-being um, is, is an important reason why there needs to be contact with someone who is not chosen by the parent uh, and who can connect with social services if they're necessary because a child is not receiving a minimally adequate upbringing. Mm -hmm. And. Jim, have you read Educated by Tara Westover? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like that is essentially the book to hand to anyone who, who doubts that this is a concern. Uh, it, it's gripping. Right. And just, you know, they did, well, it's not just Tara, right? There, yeah. Uh, some unknown number 
of people. We certainly know that the rate of maltreatment is disproportionate among homeschoolers. Again, that doesn't mean it's a, a huge percentage. Sure, sure. The absolute numbers uh, might still be low. Yeah. Okay, so you finally take uh, the, these assumptions about children's rights. You you take these basic human goods that you think every child is entitled to, and then you wrap it all up in uh, the chapter about regulation, and you make some specific policy prescriptions. And what I like about this chapter is that you you state again that this is about children's rights. It's not about parents' rights. Uh, you believe that having a stable parent-child relationship really is foundational. There should not be any unwarranted state interference into the affairs um, at home. Um, and as you already mentioned, uh, we shouldn't force kids to leave the house if they don't want to. And, and I've never heard anyone explain this in quite those terms. So can you maybe give me a little bit of backstory about how you came to this specific conception? I, uh, it is an unusual place to start. And uh, most of the people that I speak with about homeschooling, uh, the editors of uh, the book, you know, questions were raised. Why are you starting there? The usual place to start is a right to education. Um, I do believe that uh, a child's attachment relationship with parents is the most important aspect of their well-being. That's the core uh, of their lives and of their emotional and psychological security. Many other things are very important, but that is the most important. Um, and so why not start with a right to protection of that above all else and uh, put the burden on the state to justify infringing that right? Um, I also thought in terms of comparing with adult rights, which I do in a lot of my work, I always ask myself, well, what rights do adults have in a similar context? Uh, and shouldn't children have an equivalent right? Uh, even if it's not choosing for themselves, it protects the same kinds of interests, right? So you and I have a right to stay home if we want. Nobody can order us to leave home to get uh, education of a particular kind. Um, and I think it uh, shows the proper kind of respect for children to recognize that they have that sort of right as well. We can't just order them uh, to leave their their secure base uh, whenever we want for whatever reason. So that's how I, I started there. Uh, again, thinking that this uh, ought to be something that most people are receptive to. Yeah. And, and then you essentially go back through those human goods and you say, uh, you know, are these being provided? You know, if so, then this is a positive situation for a child. Uh, if not, then there's an issue and maybe regulation is warranted. Um, and you make a point of saying that children have rights in favor of state oversight and regulation of homeschooling. I mean, that, that kind of follows from what we just said. Um, something that I noticed in, I think, one of your, your footnotes or endnotes is what if children should be entitled to to have the option to go to public school if they want to. This is something that I've, I've discussed theoretically with a lot of families. I don't know how often this actually happens, but what if there's a kid who's being homeschooled because the parents are enthusiastic believers in homeschooling or even unschooling, but then when the kid expresses an interest to go to, to public school, then the child is, is told no and essentially prevented from from initiating any process that, that would lead to enrollment in public school? 
seems contradictory, right? <laughs> it, it does. I agree. I, whenever I'm working with families and the, and the parents say, I've unschooled them since birth, and now the kid wants to go to school, I'm like, yeah, send them to school. You know, at, at, just think of it as an experiment if that helps you. But but that is respecting the child's budding autonomy. Self-direction, right? Completely. That's their self-directing choice. Uh, and in thinking about children's rights, I would, uh, again, uh, point out how many people misunderstand uh, the positive rights and negative rights distinction. So we think of our culture as one of, and our constitution as one embodying negative rights, rights against other people doing certain things. And most people think of parents' rights that way, but they think of children's rights as positive rights, sort of begging to receive certain goods. Uh, and the Supreme Court has been resistant to that. I would flip things around and say that, uh, as I noted before, what parents are asking for is a positive right. Give me something. Give me power over the child's life. Uh, and conversely, that uh, a child's right uh, to uh, state oversight is a neg- could be characterized as a negative right. Uh, essentially, the, from the child's perspective, you're saying uh, – the state, you, you state, may not give my parents monopoly power over my life. Mm-hmm. You may give, you should give them some power, some authority, because that's good for me. Uh, but for you to give them complete power over me uh, is no more acceptable with me than it would be with a wife or an incompetent adult. Uh, you should withhold some, and there should be some separation of powers uh, as between different authorities. Uh, in my life, including uh, the child themselves. So seen through that lens, a a child could be exercising uh, her negative right by saying, I choose not to be homeschooled. And, and my, my basic human goods are not being provided by this homeschooling environment. Therefore I I want to go to school. Is that right? Sure. The child be saying to the state, you may not empower my parents to keep me at home when I want to go uh, Mm -hmm. to a public school. Mm-hmm. Um, and with some, uh, you know, of course, I'm uh, no point in the book suggesting that children have a, a right to choose to do whatever they want. It's not so much a choice protecting conception of rights as an interest protecting conception of choice. But I think we should override children's choices only when we have legitimate and substantial reason to think they're hurt, harming themselves. And I think it would be very difficult to uh, make that case with respect to a choice to go to school instead of being homeschooled. Hmm. Uh, it might be that uh, their homeschool would be somewhat better for them, but you know, choosing to go to public school is not like choosing to take drugs, um, in my view. <laughs> Some people might view it that way. <laughs> it's probably uh, a lot easier to get drugs <laughs> at public school. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, maybe it's not optimal for a particular child, and I can understand a parent thinking that. Um, another analogy would be, you know, choosing not to get choosing to get a tattoo or choosing not to get medical care when, uh, when you need some choices like that with a child we might override because they're uh, physically endangering themselves. Um, but it would be difficult to see a choice to go to school as like that. Mm. So when you get down to brass tacks regulation, uh, you have a few different pieces to what you're you're suggesting. A few of the pieces that I like are the one about background checks. You you 
have a very convincing argument there that if a a parent or another member of the family who's living in the same household as a homeschool child has a, a criminal history as an abuser, then maybe that's when the state has the right to say, sorry, uh, no homeschooling in this case. Uh, I, I'm sure people, some people are going to hate me for saying that, but I was really convinced by your argument. Um, and then you also make a broad case for periodic uh, physical and psychological evaluations. And, and just hearing the words psychological evaluation come out of my mouth, it already feels a bit <laughs> Big Brother-ish, uh, kind of clockwork orange style. Mm. Uh, but I agree with your concerns about you know basic protections, basic protections for the physical, uh, psychological, and emotional well-being of children's, how to actually implement that without it turning into a very kind of oppressive institution in its own right. I, I don't know. And I, it, I didn't, I don't think, you know, either based on what you wrote in the book, but, but you believe that something like that does need to exist. Yeah. And I don't have in mind, uh, something, you know, ex extremely extensive, uh, or intrusive. Um, you know, pediatricians do this on a regular basis, they examine children physically, of course, but they are also, uh, by professional training, speaking with them, conversing with them uh, in a deliberate manner mm. to to sort of assess uh, whether there is any psychological abuse going on. And, and I would note that, you know, for many forms of abuse or neglect, the real harm is psychological rather than physical. I mean, if you think about sexual abuse, uh of course, there can be physical harm, but for the most part, in most cases, the real harm is is psychological. Mm -hmm. And uh, some, you know, minimal assessment of how a child's affect is, how are they feeling about life, about living at home, uh, by someone that that they feel comfortable with, uh, seems valuable and worth requiring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you have a few proposals about um, how this could be achieved. Uh, a kid could attend uh, public school part-time or just briefly on an ongoing basis. Uh, there could be some sort of state representative, a school district representative that comes to the home and does some sort of assessment. Again, already I, I can feel people you know, cringing at this suggestion. Um, what, uh, what I had the most trouble digesting was the site was the suggestion that a school district official should be assessing uh, the, the academic progress of a kid on an ongoing basis. It, it sounds like you were essentially arguing for what's already happening in the most restrictive states uh, in the U.S. I think New York State is the one I'm, I'm most familiar with. But even going a, a few steps beyond that also and, and getting something closer to the assessment regimes that, that I know exist right now in a few Western European countries uh, where homeschooling is legally allowed, but it's so heavily regulated that it, it doesn't leave much room for improvisation. And, and I feel like the improvisation is where so much of the magic comes from. So, mm -hmm. so maybe speak a bit more in detail about what you think would be the most reasonable regulation scheme. I tried to leave things as open as possible to allow for uh, variation, for individualization. And I would say 
what I prescribe is different from New York rather than beyond it. So I wouldn't require standardized testing uh, for all children. That that might just be one way that some families could demonstrate academic progress. Um, But I note in the book that families should be able to, you know, pursue different subjects. It's not essential that they, uh, you know, get history of a certain sort in first grade and, uh, you know, algebra before geometry and, and so forth. I mean, the, uh, there should be a great deal of flexibility for families and an assessment should just see, are they learning some things and developing basic cognitive skills? Uh, the content is actually much less important than uh, how their brains are developing and processing information uh, and uh, reasoning Mm-hmm. in different ways. So you've softened me up a bit on this, but let me tell you what I've seen and heard of happening over and over again, uh, which is, I'd say typically a kid who has gone to conventional school is so burnt out or somehow damaged by that experience that they need uh, quite a significant period of time. We call it de-schooling. Uh, other people call it just you know chilling out, but they need a significant amount of time to do what appears to be nothing, and it uh, often looks like they're watching a bunch of YouTube videos or they're playing video games or they're doing you know, something with no conventional educational value whatsoever, and this may happen for years, and then at some point they figure out that doing nothing is boring. They figure out that they do have these longer-term ter- goals that they perhaps do want to prepare to get into college. They want to you know, prepare to get a certain kind of job. And then this kind of intrinsic motivation system is kicked into overdrive. And they have a reason, a clear reason, which they never had before in their school environment, to do the hard work. And so then they kick butt, proverbially speaking. They they go and they they study for the GED or for the SAT. Uh, they go, you know, do the work they need to prepare to to jump over these these cultural hurdles and the, and these hoops we've we've put in front of them. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of them end up signing up for community college classes at age fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, even if they've had a complete dearth of academic uh, kind of exposure in recent years. And they typically do very well. And the story that we tell ourselves is that they have real motivation for it. Uh, they're not just being pushed around by this, you know, system of extrinsic motivators, uh, you know, carrots and sticks. They they have their own personal reason for it. But what comes before that is this period of what appears to be just nothingness. And so my fear, Jim, is that... Um, a, a, an otherwise very reasonable sounding regulation scheme like the one you broadly propose in the book would not allow the space for this kind of self-directed learning, which is, which is very uh, non-traditional in its, in its timing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not too familiar with that phenomenon. So I, uh, you know, can't speak intelligently to it. I would guess that, uh, it's limited to those who went to regular schooling first and then drop out of that rather than those who were homeschooled all along. Uh, not, not necessarily. I've, I've also heard of this happening with lifelong homeschoolers and non-schoolers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, of course, a homeschool environment can be very intensive as well. Uh, you know, p- 
parents generally, I think most parents freak out if they see their children wanting to do nothing for a very long period of time. And mm. so it, mm-hmm. it's valuable for you to suggest that maybe we should uh, chill out sometimes and, and accept <laughs> that they're, they're doing something that they need to do and that's, that's valuable. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd like to uh, see research, uh, people who know more about education than I do, about yeah. how to handle uh, children in that un- unfortunate situation, whether it's best to just you know not try to steer them at all for an extended period of time or try to find some alternative uh, form of learning that's not you know just looking just not just doing nothing yeah what stands out to me uh, from your book and from the history section also is that the extreme non-regulation of homeschooling in the United States uh, is what creates fertile territory for for extreme outcomes both good and bad like it, this mm-hmm. is what allows these horrible abuse cases every once in a while to happen. And again, maybe I'm just being optimistic saying every once in a while, because we really don't know. Um, But it also allows uh, what unschooling families do and what other families that are, are really, you know, when you're talking about the importance of the the parent child attachment and and attunement, Mm. it's, you know, that is what is allowed to flourish in this highly deregulated environment. Uh, where a parent can really pay attention to what their kid needs right now, not based on Edie Hirsch's what you know what your sixth grader needs to know uh, mm. book, uh, or what a, a very friendly and well-intentioned school district official who's coming in to regulate your homeschooling what that person uh, claims to know about your kid. And so, I agree with you as you said in the book. This this notion that parents always know best for their kids no that that's not true, but. Uh, yeah, how to how to navigate these these extreme situations uh, without kind of squashing the this fertile ground for homeschooling that we have right now? I don't know. It it's tricky, but your book has I think contributed in a huge and important way to this discussion and to the to having a nuanced and reasoned discussion about this and not just sitting on one of the extremes of either saying homeschooling great is great everyone should do it without you know, restriction or saying let's outlaw homeschooling. Yeah. And the real challenge that, uh, I set for myself and, you know, no pretense of having, uh, completely fulfilled it is to prevent the bad, but not squash the good to, Mm. to leave plenty of room for, uh, parents to have a lot of freedom to even experiment to individualize, um, and I like to think that it's not necessary to be absolutely hands off in order to, to avoid squashing the good. Uh, it seems that any homeschool should be able to survive and thrive while still having some interaction uh, with school officials. Uh, and I suggest in that, that final chapter that uh, they should be sympathetic school officials. So you're right, if you have some... Uh, very narrow-minded, conventional-thinking superintendent coming to inspect and criticize you because you're not following the state-prescribed course of studies, that's very problematic. Um, So I suggest that whoever does this, you know, whoever the school district hires, ideally would be people who have homeschooled, who who are positive towards it, uh, Mm -hmm. who've done it successfully, 
um, and are familiar with a, a wide range of approaches and can recognize that something can be very different and very good. Well, regardless of how anyone feels about this subject, I recommend you read the book, uh, Homeschooling. It's, it's wonderful, and, and you and Sean have really created something important. And so uh, thank you for doing that, and thank you for coming on the show, Jim. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.